Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Elias Yudkowsky, read by Inez Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. First half of Chapter 17, Locating the Hypothesis. Thursday. If you want it to be specific, 7.24 a.m. on Thursday morning. Harry was sitting on his bed, a textbook lying limp in his motionless hands. Harry had just had an idea for a truly brilliant experimental test. It would mean waiting an extra hour for breakfast, but that was why he had meal bars. No, this idea absolutely, positively had to be tested right away. Immediately, now. Harry set the textbook aside, leaped out of bed, raced around his bed, yanked out the cavern level of his trunk, ran down the stairs, and started moving boxes of books around. He really needed to unpack and get bookcases at some point, but he was in the middle of his textbook reading contest with Hermione and falling behind, so he hadn't had time. Harry found the book he wanted and raced back upstairs. The other boys were getting ready to go down to breakfast in the Great Hall and start the day. Excuse me, can you do something for me? said Harry. He was flipping through the book's index as he spoke, found the page with the first 10,000 primes, flipped to that page, and thrust the book at Anthony Goldstein. Pick two three-digit numbers from this list. Don't tell me what they are. Just multiply them together and tell me the product. Oh, and can you do the calculation twice to double-check? Please make really sure you've got the right answer. I'm not sure what's going to happen to me or the universe if you make a multiplication error. It said a lot about what life in that dorm had been like over the past few days that Anthony didn't even bother saying anything like, Why do you suddenly flip out? Or, That seems really weird. What are your reasons for asking? Or, What do you mean you're not sure what's going to happen to the universe? Anthony wordlessly accepted the book and took out a parchment and quill. Harry spun around and shut his eyes, making sure not to see anything, dancing back and forth and bouncing up and down with impatience. He got a pad of paper and a mechanical pencil and got ready to write. Okay, Anthony said. 181,429. Harry wrote down 181,429. He repeated what he'd just written down, and Anthony confirmed it. Then Harry raced back down into the cavern level of his trunk, glanced at his watch, the watch said 428, which meant 728, and then shut his eyes. Around 30 seconds later, Harry heard the sound of steps, followed by the sound of the cavern level of his trunk sliding shut. Harry wasn't worried about suffocating. An automatic air freshening charm was part of what you got if you were willing to buy a really good trunk. Wasn't magic wonderful? It didn't have to worry about electric bills. And when Harry opened his eyes, he saw just what he'd been hoping to see. A folded piece of paper left on the floor. The gift of his future self. Called that piece of paper, Paper 2. Harry tore a piece of paper off his pad. Call that Paper 1. It was, of course, the same piece of paper. You could even see, if you looked closely, that the ragged edges matched. Harry reviewed in his mind the algorithm that he would follow. If Harry opened up paper 2 and it was blank, then he would write 101 times 101 down on paper 1, fold it up, study for an hour, go back in time, drop off paper 1, which would thereby become paper 2, and head on up out of the cavern level to join his dorm mates for breakfast. If Harry opened up paper 2 and it had two numbers written on it, Harry would multiply those numbers together. If their product equaled 181,429, Harry would write down those two numbers on paper 1 and send paper 1 back in time. Otherwise, Harry would add 2 to the number on the right and write down the new pair of numbers on paper 1. Unless that made the number on the right greater than 997, in which case Harry would add 2 to the number on the left and write down 101 on the right. 
And if paper 2 said 997 times 997, Harry would leave paper 1 blank. Which meant that the only possible stable time loop was the one in which paper 2 contained the two prime factors of 181,429. If this worked, Harry could use it to recover any sort of answer that was easy to check but hard to find. He wouldn't have just shown that P equals NP once you had a time turner. This trick was more general than that. Harry could use it to find the combinations on combination locks, or passwords of every sort. Maybe even find the entrance to Slytherin's Chamber of Secrets, if Harry could figure out some systematic way of describing all the locations in Hogwarts. It would be an awesome cheat, even by Harry's standards of cheating. Harry took Paper 2 in his trembling hand and unfolded it. Paper 2 said, in slightly shaky handwriting, Do not mess with time. Harry wrote down, Do not mess with time, on paper one in slightly shaky handwriting, folded it neatly, and resolved not to do any more truly brilliant experiments on time until he was at least 15 years old. To the best of Harry's knowledge, that had been the scariest experimental result in the entire history of science. It had been somewhat difficult for Harry to focus on reading his textbook for the next hour. That was how Harry's Thursday started. Thursday. If you wanted to be specific, 3.32 p.m. on Thursday afternoon. Harry and all the other boys in the first year were outside on a grassy field with Madame Hooch, standing next to the Hogwarts supply of broomsticks. The girls would be learning to fly separately. Apparently, for some reason, girls didn't want to learn how to fly on broomsticks in the presence of boys. Harry had been a little wobbly all day long. He just couldn't seem to stop wondering how that particular stable time loop had been selected out of what was, in retrospect, a rather large space of possibilities. Also, seriously, broomsticks? He was going to fly on, basically, a line segment? Wasn't that pretty much the single most unstable shape you could possibly find, short of attempting to hold on to a point marble? Who'd selected that design for a flying device, out of all the possibilities? Harry had been hoping that it was just a figure of speech, but no, they were standing in front of what looked for all the world like ordinary wooden kitchen broomsticks. Had someone just gotten stuck on the idea of broomsticks and failed to consider anything else? It had to be. There was no way that the optimal designs for cleaning kitchens and flying would happen to coincide if you worked them out from scratch. It was a clear day with a bright blue sky and a brilliant sun that was just begging to get in your eyes and make it impossible to see, if you were trying to fly around the sky. The ground was nice and dry, smelling positively baked, and somehow felt very, very hard under Harry's shoes. Harry kept reminding himself that the lowest common denominator of 11-year-olds was expected to learn this, and it couldn't be that hard. Stick out your right hand over the broom, or a left hand if you're left-handed called Madam Hooch, and say up. Up! Everyone shouted. The broomstick leapt eagerly into Harry's hand, which put him at the head of the class for once. Apparently, saying up was a lot more difficult than it looked, and most of the broomsticks were rolling around on the ground or trying to inch away from their would-be riders. Of course, Harry would have bet money that Hermione had done at least as well when it came her own turn to try earlier in the day. There couldn't possibly be anything he could master on the first try which would baffle Hermione, and if there was, and it turned out to be broomstick riding instead of anything intellectual, Harry would just die. 
It took a while for everyone to get a broomstick in front of them. Madame Hooch showed them how to mount and then walked around the field correcting grips and stances. Apparently, even among the few children who'd been allowed to fly at home, they hadn't been taught to do it correctly. Madame Hooch surveyed the field of boys and nodded. Now when I blow my whistle, you kick off from the ground hard. Harry swallowed hard, trying to quell the queasy feeling in his stomach. Keep your broom steady, rise a few feet, and then come straight back down by leaning forward slightly. On my whistle, three, two... One of the brooms shot skyward, accompanied by a young boy's screams <coughs> of horror, not delight. The boy was spinning at an awful rate as he ascended. They only got glimpses of his white face. As though in slow motion, Harry was leaping back off his own broomstick and scrambling for his wand. Though he didn't really know what he planned to do with it, he'd had exactly two sessions of charms, and the last one had been the hover charm, but Harry had only been able to cast the spell successfully one time out of three, and he certainly couldn't levitate whole people. If there is any hidden power in me, let it reveal itself now. Come back, boy! shouted Madame Hooch, which had to be the most unhelpful instruction imaginable for dealing with an out-of-control broomstick, from a flying instructor, and a fully automatic section of Harry's brain added Madame Hooch to his tally of fools. And the boy was thrown off the broomstick. He seemed to move very slowly through the air at first. Wingardium Leviosa! screamed Harry. The spell failed. He could feel it fail. There was a thud and a distant cracking sound, and the boy lay face down on the grass in a heap. Harry sheathed his wand and raced forward at full speed. He arrived at the boy's side at the same time as Madame Hooch, and Harry reached into his pouch and tried to recall, oh god, what was the name, never mind, he'd just try, Healer's Pack, and it popped into his hand and... Broken wrist, calm down, boy, he's just got a broken wrist. There was a sort of mental lurch as Harry's mind snapped out of panic mode. The emergency Healing Pack Plus lay open in front of him, and there was a syringe of liquid fire in Harry's hand, which would have kept the boy's brain oxygenated if he'd managed to snap his neck. Ah, Harry said in a rather wavering sort of voice. His heart was pounding so loudly that he almost couldn't hear himself panting for breath. Broken bone. Right. Setting string? That's for emergencies only. Put it away, he's fine. She leaned over the boy, offering him a hand. Come on, boy, it's all right. Up you get. You're not seriously going to make him ride the broomstick again, Harry said in horror. Madame Hooch sent Harry a glare. Of course not. She pulled the boy to his feet, using his good arm. Harry saw with a shock that it was Neville Longbottom again. What was with him? And she turned to all the watching children. None of you is to move while I take this boy to the hospital wing. You leave those brooms where they are or you'll be out of Hogwarts before you can say Quidditch. Come on, dear. And Madame Hooch walked off with Neville, who was clutching his wrist and trying to control his sniffles. When they were out of earshot, one of the Slytherins started giggling. That set off the others. Harry turned and looked at them. It seemed like a good time to memorize some faces. And Harry saw that Draco was strolling toward him, accompanied by Mr. Crab and Mr. Goyle. Mr. Crab wasn't smiling. Mr. Goyle decidedly was. Draco himself was wearing a very controlled face that twitched occasionally, from which Harry inferred that Draco thought it was hilarious, but saw no political advantage to be gained by laughing about it now instead of in the Slytherin dungeons afterward. Well, Potter, 
Draco said in a low voice that didn't carry, still with that very controlled face that was twitching occasionally. Just wanted to say, when you take advantage of emergencies to demonstrate leadership, you want to look like you're in total control of the situation, rather than, say, going into a complete panic. Mr. Goyle giggled, and Draco shot him a quelling look. But you probably scored a few points anyway. You need any help stowing that healer's kit? Harry turned to look at the healing pack, which got his own face turned away from Draco. I think I'm fine, Harry said. He put the syringe back in its place, redid the latches, and stood up. Ernie McMillian arrived just as Harry was feeding the pack back into his mokeskin pouch. Thank you, Harry Potter, on behalf of Hufflepuff, Ernie McMillian said formally. It was a good try and a good thought. A good thought indeed, drawled Draco. Why didn't anyone in Hufflepuff have their wands out? Maybe if you'd all helped instead of just Potter, you could have caught him. I thought Hufflepuffs were supposed to stick together. Ernie was looking like he was torn between getting angry and wanting to die of shame. We didn't think of it in time. Ah, said Draco. Didn't think of it. I guess that's why it's better to have one Ravenclaw as a friend than all of Hufflepuff. Oh, hell, how's Harry supposed to juggle this one? You're not helping, Harry said in a mild tone, hoping Draco would interpret that as, You're interfering with my plans, please shut up. Hey, what's this? said Mr. Goyle. He stooped to the grass and picked up something around the size of a large marble, a glass ball that seemed to be filled with a swirling white mist. Ernie blinked. Neville's remember-all. What's a remember-all? asked Harry. It turns red if you've forgotten something. It doesn't tell you what you forgot, though. Give it here, please, and I'll hand it back to Neville later. Ernie held out his hand. A sudden grin flashed across Mr. Goyle's face, and he spun around and raced away. Ernie stood still for a moment in surprise, then shouted, Hey! and ran after Mr. Goyle. And Mr. Goyle grabbed a broomstick, hopped on with one smooth motion, and took to the air. Harry's jaw dropped. Hadn't Madame Hooch said that that would get him expelled? That idiot, Draco hissed. He opened his mouth to shout. Hey, shouted Ernie. That's Neville's. Give it back. The Slytherin started cheering and hooting. Draco's mouth snapped shut. Harry caught the sudden look of indecision on his face. Draco, Harry said in a low tone. If you don't order that idiot back on the ground, the teacher's going to get back and... Come and get it, Hufflepuffle, shouted Mr. Goyle, and a great cheer went up from the Slytherins. I can't, whispered Draco. Everyone in Slytherin would think I'm weak. And if Mr. Goyle gets expelled, hissed Harry, your father is going to think you're a moron. Draco's face twisted in agony. At that moment, Hey, Slither Slime, shouted Ernie. Didn't anyone ever tell you that Hufflepuffs stick together? Wands out, Hufflepuff. And there were suddenly a whole lot of wands pointed in Mr. Goyle's direction. Three seconds later, Wands out, Slytherin! said around five different Slytherins, and there were a whole lot of wands pointed in Hufflepuff's direction. Two seconds later, Wands out, Gryffindor! Do something, Potter, whispered Draco. I can't be the one to stop this. It has to be you. I'll owe you a favor. Just think of something. Aren't you supposed to be brilliant? In around five and a half seconds, realized Harry, Someone was going to cast the Sumerian Simple Strike Hex, and by the time it was over and the teachers were done expelling people, the only boys left in his ear would be Ravenclaws. Wands out, Ravenclaw! shouted Michael Corner, 
who was apparently feeling left out of the disaster. Gregory Goyle! screamed Harry. I challenge you to a contest for possession of Neville's Remember-All! There was a sudden pause. Oh, really? said Draco in the loudest drawl Harry had ever heard. That sounds interesting. What sort of contest, Potter? Err, contest had been as far as Harry's inspiration had gotten. What sort of contest? He couldn't say chess because Draco wouldn't be able to accept without it looking strange. He couldn't say arm wrestling because Mr. Goyle would crush him. How about this? Harry said loudly. Gregory Goyle and I stand apart from each other and no one else is allowed to come near either of us. We don't use our wands and neither does anyone else. I don't move from where I'm standing and neither does he. And if I can get my hands on Neville's Remember-All, then Gregory Goyle relinquishes all claim to that Remember-All he's holding and gives it to me. There was another pause as people's looks of relief transmuted to confusion. Ha, Potter, said Draco loudly. I'd like to see you do that. Mr. Goyle accepts. It's on, said Harry. Potter, what? whispered Draco, which he did somehow without moving his lips. Harry didn't know how to answer without moving his. People were putting their wands away, and Mr. Goyle swooped gracefully to the ground, looking rather confused. Some Hufflepuffs started over toward Mr. Goyle, but Harry shot them a desperately pleading look, and they backed off. Harry moved toward Mr. Goyle and stopped when he was a few paces away, far enough apart that they couldn't reach each other. Slowly, deliberately, Harry sheathed his wand. Everyone else backed away. Harry swallowed. He knew in broad outline what he wanted to do, but it had to be done in such a way that no one understood what he'd done. All right, Harry said loudly, and now... He took a deep breath and raised one hand, fingers ready to snap. There were gasps from anyone who'd heard about the pies, which was practically everyone. I call upon the insanity of Hogwarts. Happy, happy, boom, boom, swamp, swamp, swamp. And Harry snapped his fingers. A lot of people flinched. And nothing happened. Harry let the silence stretch on for a while, developing, until... Um... Someone said. Is that it? Harry looked at the boy who'd spoken. Look in front of you. You see that patch of ground that looks barren without any grass on it? Um, yeah, said the boy, a Gryffindor. Dean something? Dig it up. Now Harry was getting a lot of strange looks. Er, why? Said Dean something. Just do it, said Terry Boot in a weary voice. No point in asking why. Trust me on this one. Dean something kneeled down and began to scoop away dirt. After a minute or so, Dean stood up again. There's nothing there. Huh. Harry had been planning to go back in time and bury a treasure map that would lead to another treasure map that would lead to Neville's Remember-All, which he would put there after getting it back from Mr. Goyle. Then Harry realized there was a much simpler way which didn't threaten the secret of the time-turners quite as much. Thanks, Dean, Harry said loudly. Ernie, would you look around on the ground where Neville fell and see if you can find Neville's Remember-All? People looked even more confused. Just do it, said Terry Boot. He kept trying until something works. And the scary thing is that... Merlin! Gasped Ernie. He was holding up Neville's remember-all. It's here! Right where he fell! 
What? cried Mr. Goyle. He looked down and saw that he was still holding Neville's rememberall. There was a rather long pause. Er, said Dean something. That's not possible, is it? It's a plot hole, said Harry. I made myself weird enough to distract the universe for a moment, and it forgot that Goyle had already picked up the rememberall. No, wait. I mean, that's totally not possible. Excuse me? Are we all standing around here waiting to go flying on broomsticks? Yes, we are. So shut up. Anyway, once I get my hands on Neville's rememberall, the contest is over, and Gregory Goyle has to relinquish all claim to the rememberall he's holding and give it to me. Those were the terms, remember? Harry stretched out a hand and beckoned Ernie. Just roll it over here, since no one's supposed to get close to me, okay? Hold on, shouted a Slytherin, Blaise Zabini. Harry wasn't likely to forget that name. How do we know that's Neville's rememberall? You could have just dropped another rememberall there. The Slytherin is strong with this one, Harry said, smiling. But you have my word that the one Ernie's holding is Neville's. No comment about the one Gregory Goyle's holding. Zabini spun to Draco. Malfoy, you're not just going to let him get away with that. Shut up, you, rumbled Mr. Crab, standing behind Draco. Mr. Malfoy doesn't need you to tell him what to do. Good minion. My bet was with Draco of the noble and most ancient house of Malfoy, Harry said. Not with you, Zabini. I have done what Mr. Malfoy said he'd like to see me do, and as for the judgment of the bet, I leave that up to Mr. Malfoy. Harry inclined his head toward Draco and raised his eyebrows slightly. That ought to allow Draco to save enough face. There was a pause. You promised that actually is Neville's rememberall, Draco said. Yes, Harry said. That's the one that'll go back to Neville, and it was his originally. And the one Gregory Goyle's holding goes to me. Draco nodded, looking decisive. I won't question the word of the noble house of Potter, then, no matter how strange that all was. And the noble and most ancient house of Malfoy keeps its word as well. Mr. Goyle, give that to Mr. Potter. Hey, Zabini said. He hasn't won yet. He hasn't got his hands on... Catch, Harry, said Ernie, and he tossed the rememberall. Harry easily snapped the rememberall out of the air. He'd always had good reflexes that way. There, said Harry. I win. Harry trailed off. All conversation stopped. The rememberall was glowing bright red in his hand, blazing like a miniature sun that cast shadows on the ground in broad daylight. Thursday. If you wanted to be specific, 5.09 p.m. on Thursday afternoon in Professor McGonagall's office after flying classes, with an extra hour for Harry slipped in between. Professor McGonagall sitting on her stool, Harry in the hot seat in front of her desk. Professor, Harry said tightly, Slytherin was pointing their wands at Hufflepuff, Gryffindor was pointing their wands at Slytherin, some idiot called wands out in Ravenclaw, and I had maybe five seconds to keep the whole thing from blowing sky high. It was all I could think of. Professor McGonagall's face was pinched and angry. You are not to use the time-turner in that fashion, Mr. Potter. Is the concept of secrecy not something that you understand? They don't know how I did it. They just think I can do really weird things by snapping my fingers. 
I've done other weird stuff that can't be done with time turners even, and I'll do more stuff like that, and this case won't even stand out. I had to do it, Professor. You did not have to do it. All you needed to do was get this anonymous Slytherin back on the ground and the wands put away. You could have challenged him to a game of exploding snap, but no, you had to use the time turner in a flagrant and unnecessary manner. It was all I could think of. I don't even know what exploding snap is. They wouldn't have accepted a game of chess, and if I'd picked arm wrestling, I would have lost. Then you should have picked wrestling. Harry blinked. But then I'd have lost. Harry stopped. Professor McGonagall was looking very angry. I'm sorry, Professor McGonagall, Harry said in a small voice. I honestly didn't think of that, and you're right, I should have. It would have been brilliant if I had, but I just didn't think of that at all. Harry's voice trailed off. It was suddenly apparent to him that he'd had a lot of other options. He could have asked Draco to suggest something. He could have asked the crowd. His use of the time-turner had been flagrant and unnecessary. There had been a giant space of possibilities. Why had he picked that one? Because he'd seen a way to win. Win possession of an unimportant trinket that the teachers would have taken back from Mr. Goyle anyway. Intent to win. That was what had gotten him. I'm sorry, Harry said again. For my pride and my stupidity. Professor McGonagall wiped a hand across her forehead. Some of her anger seemed to dissipate but her voice still came out very hard. One more display like that, Mr. Potter, and you will be returning that time-turner. Do I make myself very clear? Yes, I understand, and I'm sorry. (sighs) Then, Mr. Potter, you will be allowed to retain the time-turner for now. And considering the size of the debacle you did, in fact, avert, I will not deduct any points from Ravenclaw. Plus, you couldn't explain why you deducted the points. But Harry wasn't dumb enough to say that out loud. More importantly, why did the remember-all go off like that? Does it mean I've been obliviated? That puzzles me as well. If it were that simple, I would think that the courts would use remember-alls, and they do not. I shall look into it, Mr. Potter. She sighed. (sighs) You can go now. Harry started to get up from his chair, then halted. Um, sorry, I did have something else I wanted to tell you. You could hardly see the flinch. What is it, Mr. Potter? It's about Professor Quirrell. I'm sure, Mr. Potter, that it is nothing of importance. Surely you heard the headmaster tell the students that you were not to bother us with any unimportant complaints about the defense, Professor? Harry was rather confused. But this could be important. Yesterday, I got the sudden sense of doom when... Mr. Potter, I have a sense of doom as well, and my sense of doom is suggesting that you must not finish that sentence. Harry's mouth gaped open. Professor McGonagall had succeeded. Harry was speechless. Mr. Potter, if you have discovered anything that seems interesting about Professor Quirrell, please feel free not to share it with me or anyone else. Now I think you've taken up enough of my valuable time. This isn't like you! I'm sorry, but that just seems unbelievably irresponsible! From what I've heard, there's some kind of jinx on the defense position, and if you already know something's going to go wrong, I think you'd all be on your toes. Go wrong, Mr. Potter? I certainly hope not. Professor McGonagall's face was expressionless. 
After Professor Blake was caught in a closet with no fewer than three fifth-year Slytherins last February, and a year before that, Professor Summers failed so completely as an educator that her students thought a boggart was a kind of furniture, it would be catastrophic if some problem with the extraordinarily competent Professor Quirrell came to my attention now, and I dare say most of our students would fail their defense OLWs and NEWTs. I see, Harry said slowly, taking it all in. So in other words, whatever's wrong with Professor Quirrell, you desperately don't want to know about it until the end of the school year. And since it's currently September, he could assassinate the Prime Minister on live television and get away with it, so far as you're concerned. Professor McGonagall gazed at him unblinkingly. I am certain that I could never be heard endorsing such a statement, Mr. Potter. At Hogwarts, we strive to be proactive with respect to anything that threatens the educational attainment of our students. Such as first-year Ravenclaws who can't keep their mouths shut. I believe I understand you completely, Professor McGonagall. Oh, I doubt that, Mr. Potter. I doubt that very much. Professor McGonagall leaned forward, her face tightening again. Since you and I have already discussed matters far more sensitive than these, I shall speak frankly. You, and you alone, have reported this mysterious sense of doom. You, and you alone, are a chaos magnet, the likes of which I have never seen. After our little shopping trip to Diagon Alley, and then the sorting hat, and then today's little episode, I can well foresee that I am fated to sit in the headmaster's office and hear some hilarious tale about Professor Quirrell, in which you, and you alone, play a starring role, after which there will be no choice but to fire him. I'm already resigned to it, Mr. Potter. And if this sad event takes place any earlier than the Ides of May, I will string you up by the gates of Hogwarts with your own intestines and pour fire beetles into your nose. Now do you understand me completely? Harry nodded, his eyes very wide. Then, after a second, What do I get if I can make it happen on the last day of the school year? Get out of my office! End first half of chapter 17 Thank you to the following people. Minerva McGonagall, read by Autumn Rachel Dryden Gregory Goyle, Anthony Westbrook Ernie McMillan Eric Starling. Terry Boot was voiced by Stefan Wäldchen. Vincent Crabb by Captain Hatchmo. Madam Hooch by Megan Clare. Anthony Goldstein read by Seth Morrigan. Dean Thomas. David Liu. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit LessWrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Come back next week for the second half of Chapter 17, Locating the Hypothesis. 